As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is a prepaid call from Kimberly Boone, an inmate at a Florida Department of Corrections institution. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show, a show where I interview many inmates who are serving lengthy prison sentences for a range of different crimes. This week is part one of my chat with Kimberly Boone. For those of you who listened to my previous interviews with Doris Moore, you'll know Kimberly Boone as the prison law clerk. Uh, my name is Kimberly Boone. I go by Kim, and I have been incarcerated almost 14 years. I have 17 and a half left to go if I have to do my entire prison sentence. Um, About six and a half years ago, I finally got into the law library. I've always been interested in helping others. I kind of got railroaded on my case. And when I got here, I realized that I wasn't the only one that got railroaded by the system and you know it it just had a fire in me that I wanted to help other individuals even if I was not going to be able to help myself and so that's kind of how I got into it. I obviously met Kim when I was introduced to her by Therese as the lady who was helping her get back into court and it was in fact this chat with Kim which would set this podcast down in an entirely different path. While chatting with Kim about being a law clerk she made a comment about her own situation which piqued my interest and of course I needed to know more. You have one minute remaining. So that's fascinating. So are, are you in your current situation, um, are you also serving time for a, a crime that you didn't commit? Well, my case is a little different. I had a, a house fire. It was an accidental house fire. It was ruled accidental. Um, my husband at the time was the only one home. He had been a firefighter for 15 years. The state decided that they wanted to blame it on someone, you know, months and months later. And so they charged me with arson and uh, first-degree premeditated attempted murder on my husband. He wasn't hurt in the fire. He was just fine. But they they made a circumstantial case against me, and we, we really thought that they would end up dropping it. But um, I ended up – I scored out to six years in prison, and they gave me 40 years in prison and 25 years probation. They gave me 10 times the amount that I scored out to 
you know, I, I had a fire marshal testify on my behalf in trial, and, you know, still wow. things didn't turn out, you know, the way that we thought that they would turn out. So That's incredible. Yeah, and I got more than if I had killed somebody. And, you know, it was an accidental house fire. It was my house. I was, I was a, a director of financial aid at Kaplan University. Um, you know, I, I had a productive member of society, two sons. Um, black belt and karate and you know they did modeling so you know I couldn't have got gotten any squeakier clean you know but um, you know they they try to they find a, a crime and then they try to make the evidence fit the crime and then they look for a motive afterwards and it usually comes down to financial they'll you know pin everything on well you know she'd benefit financially from this or whatever but that's kind of how that happened now if you're anything like me, when you hear that, you, you just have to know more. So after our chat, I sent Kim a message and asked if she would be willing to come on and share her story. And I am so glad that she agreed to do so because this story is incredible. Today, the case of a local woman accused of trying to kill her husband twice could go to the jury. So I was feeling a little bit groggy, had a headache, a little bit disoriented. Um, headache got worse, almost like I had a stroke. Kimberly Boone faces attempted murder charges. She's accused of setting fire to her house with her husband inside. Jurors say Kimberly Boone did it, tried to set her drugged husband on fire. That's to count one. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of the lesser-included offense of attempted second-degree murder. So before we get too deep into the weeds and the details of what happened to see Kim locked up for essentially the rest of her natural life, I wanted to know a bit about her, where she came from and what she was doing before this all happened. Well, you know, I had a pretty, um, what I would call normal life. I, uh, I was married, my husband, we lived in Maryland and um, he had been a firefighter and a sheriff up there. And we just, we loved the Florida area and we just decided to buy a house down here. And, um, when we got down here, uh, I ended up getting a job with Kaplan University. I was a financial aid manager. And what we did is I managed 27 um, employees who uh, found grants and loans for students to go to school. Actually, that's what I was doing when I was arrested. But, um, you know, I, I had two sons. I had been married 13 years. Um, kind of a typical mom. Um, other than working full time, I just my, both of my sons were black belts in taekwondo, and they did modeling, and um, you know, just kind of just a normal life. You know, I just I didn't go out and and, and hang out. You know, my my husband, and my kids were my best friends. How old were your sons um, when you were arrested? They were five and a half and eight and a half. Wow, that's um. Yeah, they were in kindergarten, it, second grade. Yeah. I, I imagine they they don't really remember much. Yeah, I doubt if they do. Um, I haven't. Uh, I haven't had any contact with them since I was arrested because my husband was the victim that was named in the crime. So, you know, obviously he had full custody of them, and so he didn't allow me any type of contact with them. And they're actually my youngest just turned 19 last week, and uh, the oldest one will be 22. So it's been quite a long time since I've even been able to see them or talk to them. So you literally have not spoken to your children since one was five and the other was eight years old? Correct. It's been almost 14 years. Do you get photos or, or any information about how they're doing? Well, um, someone who I actually met in prison went home several years ago and she found 
some pictures on, uh, you know, Facebook and yeah. um, one of the other sites out there. I'm not even sure what it is, but she was able to find some and forward them to me. So I've, I've got recent pictures as of maybe about a year and a half, two years ago. And they've never tried to contact you? No, they haven't. So as a father of two small children, I find this part very difficult because my kids are of the same age as what Kim's kids were at the time of this incident and I, I can't even begin to imagine how that must feel. One day you're waking up seeing your babies, making them breakfast and taking them to the park, protecting them and teaching them about the world. And the next moment, you're taken away from them. No contact, no phone calls, no messages, not even any photos. Those babies that you left 14 years ago are now essentially adults. They've gone through high school, most likely had their first relationship, got their driver's licenses, celebrated 14 birthdays and Christmases, and you've not spoken to them or seen them once. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not sitting here saying Kim is innocent. As you know, the proof of innocence or guilt is not what we're about here. But those children were most certainly innocent. And one night, they lost their mother. Okay, so let's talk about um, the particular uh, situation that found you uh, being charged. So you, there was a house fire at, at, your, at your, uh, your home. Talk me through the situation. Okay, we had been... Um my husband and I, it's kind of a, something that led up to that day. Well, we had sold a car on eBay. Um, we, the, the gentleman that purchased the car lived in Nashville, and we lived in, which is in Tennessee, and we lived in Florida. So he just said, instead of, you know, shipping the vehicle, will you guys drive it up there? So my husband and I thought it would be kind of a fun trip. We, um, we had the kids' uh, grandfather watching them, and my husband and I just took a, a trip. We drove it up to Nashville. And we flew back home the next day. Um, so, you know, my husband drove. He didn't get much sleep. So we got back. I think it was a Wednesday night. And um, when we got up Thursday morning, we got we took the children to school. And I had to check for the, the car. You know, I had to get it in the bank. And so my husband, he said he wasn't feeling well, so he'd like to go home and take a nap. So we drove back to the house and... After about, you know, maybe an hour of him laying down sleeping, he said he still didn't feel well. Um, he asked for some sinus medication and a glass of water, so I took that to him. And I'm mentioning this because it, you know, they tried to bring it up in my case, so those, it's kind of, you know, important that I mention it. Yep. Um, and so he asked for a glass of water, and I brought it to him, and he said he still wasn't feeling real well, and, you know, his head was throbbing. And so uh, after a while, he he basically just laid down and said, well, go ahead and, you know, take the check to the bank because it was a large amount of, of money. Pick me up, you know, before we could go pick up the kids for school. So I I went to the bank. I, we owned another house. And um, I stopped by the house and spoke to my father-in-law was staying in it because, you know, he had – I stopped by the house and spoke to my father-in-law was staying in it because, you know, he had – I'll back up a little bit. He had come down from Maryland to watch the kids for us to go up, drive this, you know, car up to Tennessee. So he was still staying at the other house. Mm -hmm. And I went over there and checked on him. And while I was there, I got a phone call that 
my husband was okay, but that he had been involved in a house fire and that our house, um, you know, it was our house that had caught on fire. And so I just went and, you know, to check out the situation. Um, they took him to the hospital. Uh, he had no smoke inhalation, but they said that he was acting kind of groggy and disoriented, so they wanted to check it out and, and make sure that he was okay. And so they kept him for observation overnight. I met with the um, the State Farm Insurance agent, and um, that was pretty much it. Uh, I went and saw my husband in the hospital that evening, me and the children, and then I went the next day and picked him up, and he came home. Um, there were really no issues at all. You know, they probably about a week later, they had the fire marshal come out uh, from State Farm Insurance. Like, there were two fire marshals in the case. One worked for the state of Florida, and one worked for... Um, an independent contractor that was contracted by the insurance company. And what they do is they go through and ensure that, number one, it wasn't arson. And then they try to find a cause of the fire. That way, if it was an electronic device, they could go back and charge that company. Yeah. So they both ruled it accident, probably electrical in nature. They didn't know exactly the source of the fire, but they thought it might be electrical, and they knew where it started. Um. And there were really no issues with it. They ended up paying out the claim um, and closed the case. Um, and then... Was there any discussions it, between... It's kind of complicated. Yeah, I, I have sort of, as I said, I've read a bit about it. It is very complicated. So but so once, once you picked your husband up from the hospital and you guys went home, was there any discussions between you and your husband about how the fire may have started or, or any of that sort of stuff? Well, he thought it... You know, he was telling his family and we discussed and he thought that he had a laptop. He had a Lenovo IBM ThinkPad and they were... There were reports in the news that they had a tendency to overheat. So even though they did not pinpoint it to the laptop, we thought maybe because he had it sitting on the nightstand that it may have overheated and caused the nightstand to, you know, to, you know, catch on fire or something on the nightstand to catch on fire. We weren't really sure. We just knew that that's where it started. And that's what we were thinking it was. Okay. So I do want to jump in here because after chatting with Kim about this and her thoughts and her husband's thoughts, apparently around these think pads and how that could be the cause of the issue. I did a bit of research, and in fact, there does seem to be a number of forums and articles relating to a certain issue with the Lenovo's around this time, their tendency to overheat and some battery-related issues. Now, of course, this is not what the fire marshals had ruled. However, it is important to note for later on during the trial that both fire marshals did rule the fire accidental and could not pinpoint a cause. So as far as I have read, your husband was, was pulled out of the house by a neighbour, is that correct? My husband got up, and he, from his testimony, he said he got up, and he was disoriented. It, the house was so black with smoke, he didn't know if it was night or day, so he immediately went down to check to see if the children were there. Um, he came back towards the front door, towards the fire, and what he did was he, I guess he was disoriented, and, you know, because there were 13 other exits that he could have gone out of the house, but he came back to where the fire was, and he picked up something to break a window um, instead of just going out another door or, you know, and they attributed this to him being disoriented. So he, when he was breaking the window, the neighbor was outside washing the car and he heard him, so he came over and helped him get out the window. Okay. I want you to take note of this particular part of what we're talking about. This would later become testimony from Kim's husband who would take the stand. In fact, it would become such a talking point during the trial that it would make the news. 
Tough talk between the victim in an attempted murder case and his ex-wife's lawyer. Robert Boone had to be pulled from his burning house in December 2008. The state says his ex-wife tried to kill him by setting that house on fire with him inside. But we'll get to that later on. So it's, it's been ruled accidental. The insurance company's paid out. Um, you, you've kind of, I suppose, moved on from this situation. How long after the fact, after this fire had happened and it had been ruled an, an accident, did you find out that actually they were looking into it as not an accident and as almost uh, potentially um, uh, done on purpose? It was about four months, I think. So what happens? So did, did you get a phone call? Did the police come round? What, what happens? How did you find that out? What, that they were investigating? Yeah. This is kind of where it gets complicated. So when Kim says, this is where things get complicated, we're definitely not talking to reach more complicated. However, things are about to take one hell of a dramatic turn. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Kim talks us through the night that would change her life forever. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So before we continue with Kim's story, I just want to take this opportunity to once again simply say thank you. The amount of wonderful comments, reviews and five-star ratings for this show has truly blown us away. We really do appreciate your support. And if you want to help the show, it's simple and it's totally free. In fact, this week I have a mission for you. Tell just one person about the show. Spread the word about one minute remaining so that we can continue to bring you these stories. Now, with the groveling and pleading out of the way, let's get back to Kim's story. So, Kim and her husband have just been through a house fire. Kim's husband was released from hospital with a clean bill of health, and life was getting back to normal, when things took a dramatic turn. So, we owned a second home. So, when we had the fire, it only burned the bedroom, the master bedroom and the bathroom, but it was uninhabitable because of the extensive smoke damage. So, we moved into our second home. Um, You know, we were going on with life as usual, and... We had a break-in in our home like four months later when we were rebuilding the other home. Like I said, the insurance company had already had already paid out the payoff. Um, we had hired a company to come in. They had torn off the roof and, you know, all that stuff. It just had a shell of the home left. While we were staying in the other home, we had a break-in one night. And um, I told my husband that I heard something in the garage. So he got up. We were both, I have to explain this, so we both had um, a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Right. So, when when I told him it sounded like there was somebody out in the garage, he told me, he said, you know, grab the gun. He used to always, like I said, he used to be a police officer, so he always loaded the gun, put it on my my desk when he left, and he said, don't answer the door without this. He kind of made me very fearful of just my surroundings, and you know, just being very aware of them. So just on a day-to-day um, basis before he left the house, he would load a firearm, leave it on your desk and say, don't answer the door without this gun. Yeah. Where did you live? Yeah, he did. <laughs> I mean, <were> you... um, <laughs> we, live, we lived in a good neighbourhood, but, you know, it's just, I guess when you are in that line of work, you see, he used to tell me that he would see the worst in life and the worst of people and yeah. that I was too trusting of people. You know, so... Um, you know, because I could strike up a conversation with anybody, and he just thought, you know, what, you know, what are you doing? You, sure. you don't know who this person is. So, yeah, he kind of, he kind of had me like, you know, just on edge to become very aware. Yeah, I was kind of on edge of everything. So anyway, he um, that night um, he said, you know, get grab the gun, you know, let's walk out here. So we walked up to the garage, and the garage door was wide open, and the garage door was right beside our children's bedroom. And I thought that was very strange. And he said, well, I guess I just didn't close it, but that was kind of unusual. Mm. So he goes back to bed and he um, he went in, he went to sleep. But me, you know, I'm kind of a worry wart. So I walked around, I checked the doors, I looked at the windows and I went in the kid's room and, and tucked him in again. And while I was in there, I heard like a something, a noise out in the garage, like a wrench drop. So... Um, I yelled, like, for my husband, right, that that second I yelled for him. And as I yelled for him, somebody was coming at me, and um, he didn't make any kind of sound or anything. So I still had this gun on me, and I shot at him. It It was actually my husband that was there. I didn't realize it was him. 
And um, he said he had yelled out for me, and I didn't hear him. And I said I yelled out for him, and he didn't hear me. But I ended up shooting my husband. Wow. He yelled, you know, oh, my gosh, I've been shot. So I immediately just called 911. Luckily, we had a, uh, a sheriff at the corner. It was about 45 seconds away, I think, is, is all the longer that they told me that it took for him to get there. Um, I sat with him, and, you know, he said on the 911 call, uh, my wife accidentally shot me. He, you know, he knew the situation and everything. That um, It's kind of it's hard to talk about. Yeah, no, that's so anyway, all right. Sorry, um, take your time. It's okay. So anyway, that's, you know, I was laying, he was laying there on the floor, and I held his hand, and they had contacted the the paramedics um and then uh when the kids the kids i guess heard the commotion with the police officers there and they got up and they came in the room and i said well i've got to get the kids out of here so i went in and i sat with them in the living room the um the ambulance came they took my husband to the hospital do you mind me asking where where he'd been shot um i shot him right in the chest right and it was it was pitch dark so it was like i don't know even what time it was it was in the middle of the night sometime two three four o'clock in the morning i'm not sure but um it was pitch dark when I turned around, and um, and I just saw, and honestly, I just saw this shadow coming at me. I yelled for my husband; he didn't answer. And you know, and this is what they tell you when you're, you know, my like I said, he was a police officer, and he used to say, you know, you shoot, shoot first, and you drag him in the house if you have to, if you feel like somebody's coming in to injure the children, you know. And so the door was open; we were right by the kids' room, and it was just kind of a reactionary thing. Um, yeah. But anyway, when the they they took him to the hospital, major crimes came, and they said, you know, please just tell us what happened. And you know, when they say you kind of you kind of forget exactly, like at that moment, you kind of block it out when it's traumatic. So, you know, I had to sit there and really think about the pro, the progression of events and what happened. And they said it's okay. Your husband already told us that this was an accident. Yeah. And so. Uh, they said, just come down to the station and give us a statement. So that's what I did is I gave them a statement. And as soon as I told them what happened, they they put me in cuffs and they arrested me for first degree premeditated attempted murder. I never went back home. They said, tell us what happened. And, and in fact, I left my kids with a neighbor and I said, you know, tell, you know, figure out what you guys want for lunch. And when I get back, I'll take you out. And they said, okay. I mean, we didn't think it was, you know, my concern was my husband's his health like how he was so they wouldn't give me any updates i had no idea but the second i said yes this is what happened and i pulled the trigger they arrested me for a first degree premeditated attempted murder let's briefly put ourselves in kim's shoes here she's had what she believes to be a break-in at her property which has resulted in her shooting her husband her husband as she says tells police that this was an accident she's taken to the police station and asked to give a statement She tells the story, and then her life changes forever. She's charged with the attempted murder of her husband. And if that wasn't bad enough, while she's sitting in jail with that charge, detectives come to her with a new one. So, while I'm in jail, I'm in jail for about a month, and they go back while I'm in jail for this shooting, and they charge me with first-degree premeditated attempted murder and arson for the fire that happened in December of the previous year. 
So that case was closed. The fire case was closed. Yeah, so they're doing some investigation into your past. They've seen this fire and they've gone, hold on. So she sh- shot her husband here and then uh, only a short time ago. Was it, right. a, was it a year a year previous that the fire happened or was it sooner than that? It was about four months. Yeah, they said two bad things can't possibly happen to somebody within a short period of time. And like I said, the fire investigation, had we'd been investigated by two fire marshals, one for the state and one for State Farm, and... They closed the case. They had paid off the house. They paid us out. I think they had written a check for three hundred and something thousand dollars to us. Um, and, and ironically, that check. My husband and I had a joint account, and he had an individual account, and he put all the money into his individual account, so I couldn't even touch it. Um, and that's important because later on they said I did it, you know, to get the money. Okay. Quick recap time. So in December, Kim's out running some errands and checking on her father-in-law. While she's out, she gets a call that there's been a fire at her home. Her husband had been asleep in the bedroom when the fire occurred, but had managed to get out with the help of a neighbour. He'd taken some medication of Kim's in order to help him sleep, something we'll talk about when we come to the trial, as this is something he did say that he would do on occasion. However, prosecutors will claim that Kim drugged her husband intentionally. Her husband is later released from hospital with no smoke inhalation or injuries, something else that will come up during the trial. The fire is ruled an accident by not one, but two independent fire marshals. The claim is then paid out by the insurance company and the money is placed into Kim's husband's account, which she says she did not have access to. Four months pass and they're going about their life as normal when one night Kim hears a noise coming from the garage. Her husband, who she says was always concerned with safety and protection, tells her to grab her gun and they go and check it out. They see the garage door is open, but there's nothing there. He then goes back to bed and she goes to check on the children. While she's in with the children, Kim says she hears another noise coming from the garage. She calls out for her husband, but gets no response. She calls out again, still no response. She says she sees a figure in the dark coming at her. So she aims her weapon and fires hitting her husband once in the chest. Kim says that her husband informed police that he knew it was an accident. Detectives then ask if she can come to the station and make a statement. On telling them that she is the one that shot her husband, she is arrested on the spot for attempted murder. So Kimberly Boone was leading a very normal suburban life. She was a mother of two children and a wife with a husband who she says she never argued with. In fact, he was her best friend. A series of events had led to Kimberly Boone's arrest and now incarceration. A lady who had never been to jail in her life before. So the obvious question I wanted to know was, what was it like for that very first time walking into that environment? Was that the first time you'd been in trouble with police before? I I had been arrested a long time ago. Mm. Um, for um, some kind of a petty theft thing that they ended up expunging from my record. Right. So, yeah, so nothing serious in the past. You'd never been to jail before. No, I have never been to jail. Nothing ever violent. The police had never been called out for any type of domestic disturbance. So, you know, for all accounts and purposes, I had just a a normal, you know, middle-class life going on. Can I ask what it was like your first time going to jail? Was that a terrifying experience? It was... um, when I first was arrested, you know, I, I had no idea. I um, was put in a holding cell overnight, and they had one huge room, and they had a bunch of mattresses. 
and you just took a mattress and you threw it out on the floor and there were probably about 20 20 something people in a room that's about maybe 15 by 15 and so we spent the first 24 hours there and i kept hearing them talking about you know going into the different pods and um you know, when I when they were escorting me in there, I basically was just holding everything to my chest, afraid to touch the walls. I just was, you know, it was just uh, an experience I had never, I had never had to go through before, and I had never even known anybody that was arrested until I was arrested. So, you know, it just wasn't a life that I had ever even known really that existed. How did you cope with being in that situation? Well, when I first went in, I just, you know, I was under the impression that my husband would would call, you know, contact somebody and that I would be out before, you know, a few days. I didn't even think I could last two weeks in there. Just, um, and I don't know, you just kind of, you really only have two choices. You either have to deal with it or, or, you know, what's your alternative is just to lay down and die. You can't obviously do that, but it's just, um, it's just a matter of continuing to have hope and, and belief in yourself and your innocence and that somebody will will see the truth and that, you know, you'll be able to be let, let out and go back home. Yeah. So, so did you try and call your husband when he didn't call you? I did. I tried to, um, I didn't know how he was at first. So I tried to contact his mom and they just never answered the phone. And so my mom called, you know, obviously from her house and talked to my husband's mother a couple of times. And then all of a sudden the phones were disconnected and they just, you know, it was no other way to get a hold, excuse me, a hold of them. So they just basically cut you and your family off completely? Yes, they did. Wow. You have one minute remaining. And uh, that went fast. Yeah, I know. It does go so so quick because we're talking about these things. Just time flies. Look, what we'll do is... And there's our friend to kindly wrap up the episode. But coming up... The biggest thing that intrigues me about this case is the relationship between Kim and her husband. If we take Kim's side of what happened as the truth, then she says her husband knew that this was an accident. So, while she's on trial for his attempted murder, the question obviously is, what's he doing? Is he coming to your defence? No, I never spoke to him again. Next time on One Minute Remaining... One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.